by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guy for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about the latest report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change about what needs to be done to uh, basically save the planet and, uh, you know, make sure that the worst aspects of climate catastrophe are avoided. Also going to be uh, touching on the ongoing uh, results of the zero COVID policy in China and how the country continues to grapple with the pandemic. And it's Tuesday, which means we're having our weekly segment Tech for the People. And and as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, now the U.S. State Department-sponsored media apparatus is declaring that there were war crimes committed by Russian troops in the town of Buka, just west of Kiev, now that the Kiev army has retaken that town. There are reports of bodies with bound hands and feet and mass graves being published in all the major newspapers in the U.S. and France and Germany, even with accompanying pictures and satellite imagery of those bodies. I'm not going to say that Russian troops committed no atrocities. I do find the accusations dubious and opportunistic since the very same media outlets screaming for war crimes charges and tribunals for Buka have completely ignored the war crimes committed by Ukrainian forces in the eight year civil war in that country that's been going on since 2014, in which the United Nations Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, or the OHCA, HR has observed an apparent lack of motivation to investigate in some cases, especially when it concerns acts allegedly committed by Ukrainian forces. That's directly from their report. The report indicates that, yes, the pro-Russian separatist forces in the eastern Ukraine regions fighting against the pro-Western Kiev government may also have committed atrocities against members of the Kiev army, you know, the army that started the civil war against them, and pointed out the fact that rocket systems never intended for urban areas could be recognized as war crimes as, as they're used in urban areas, but there were no demands from the U.S. government or NATO or any of its allies for investigating any of those incidents in the past eight years, especially not against the Kiev army and the neo-Nazis in them that were armed with those rockets to use against those ethnic Russians in eastern Ukraine. And there never will be, folks, because then they'd have to explain why the civil war even happened. And that would force the U.S., EU and NATO to face up to their coup in 2014. And the fact that the State Department sponsored media outlets are posting pictures of the gruesomeness of war to document these allegations of war crimes against Russia is interesting because there were never any pictures of the highway of death in Iraq. You know about the highway of death, right? The result of American forces bombing 
retreating Iraqi forces from Kuwait, which it had invaded and annexed, uh, and all its oil in August of 1990. Now, the United Nations Security Council urged all necessary means to force Iraqi forces out of Kuwait, of course, at the urging of the Western countries, angry that they didn't have access to all that oil any longer. Operation Desert Storm was launched on January 17, 1991, which decimated the Iraqi forces. The Iraqis realized they had no choice but to retreat from Kuwait and were reported to have committed atrocities against Kuwaiti resistance fighters themselves. But during their retreat from Kuwait, they were retreating. Beginning on the night of February 26th, Allied forces launched a combined ground, air, and sea assault on Highway 80, the main artery out of Kuwait, targeting Iraqi vehicles for 10 hours as they left along that highway. The Iraqi army was retreating. U.S. coalition forces targeted those retreating vehicles, bombing the highway incessantly for 10 hours. Hundreds of vehicles were destroyed and left burning on the road, creating a huge and deadly traffic jam. Thousands of Iraqi soldiers were trapped in the carnage and burned to death. The international community was outraged, but not one war crime charge or tribunal was convened against the perpetrators. The U.S., and its coalition members. But whenever it's brought up, the highway of death, we're reminded of the Iraqi army's atrocities. With the quickness, though, it's probably easy to recount that Donald Trump pardoned two war criminals who were tried and convicted in military court for their crimes. Seven former platoon members accused one of the men, Navy SEAL Edward Gallagher, of routinely targeting women and children as a sniper in Iraq, as well as murdering a teenage captive in cold blood. And Nicholas Slatin is a mercenary who so far was the only man convicted of a massacre in Iraq of 14 civilians in 2007. But let's not act as if the war crimes committed by the U.S. government and its NATO allies are limited to those two men and their actions. The whole reason Julian Assange is in prison still and why Chelsea Manning was imprisoned in the first place by the U.S. government was because they released information exposing all the civilians the U.S. military were killing in Afghanistan, including the horrific collateral murder video of two U.S. Apache gunships killing a dozen people, among them many civilians and two Reuters staff members in a 2007 airstrike. Or how about the war crimes committed by the U.S. NATO allies in Libya? The report of the Independent Civil Society Fact-Finding Mission to Libya was published by the Independent Civil Society Mission to Libya, which was established by the Arab Organization for Human Rights, or the AOHR, in cooperation with the Palestinian Center for Human Rights, PCHR. Their report calls for the investigation of evidence that NATO targeted civilian sites, causing many deaths and injuries. Civilian facilities targeted by NATO bombs and missiles included schools, government buildings, at least one food warehouse, and private homes. The report presents evidence of systematic murder, torture, expulsion, and abuse of suspected Gaddafi loyalists by the NATO-backed rebel forces of the National Transitional Council, or the NTC.
Now, the NTC is the opposition group that seemed to declare itself the legitimate opposition to Gaddafi in Libya, saying that they spoke for all Libyans, even though the organic protests in opposition to Gaddafi emerged in February 2011 were unorganized, locally-based groups. The NTC quickly became the darlings of Western forces, receiving training from NATO forces, you know, those nebulous advisors that always seem to be present in a country's unrest. The report describes the forced expulsion of the mostly black-skinned inhabitants of Tawerga and the ongoing persecution of sub-Saharan migrant workers by forces allied to the NTC and its transitional government. That's the slave markets, folks, that the NATO-trained NTC forces perpetrated in Libya. And let's not forget that the U.S. Department of Defense is the largest polluter of the planet on the planet. That, as far as I'm concerned, is a crime against humanity, since the pollution the U.S. military produces negatively affects the lives of millions of people around the world. All of these are war crimes. All of these and more are crimes against humanity. All of these have been documented to have been committed by the U.S., NATO, and their European allies. Should it be found that Russian forces have committed these heinous acts in Bukha, yes, they absolutely should be made accountable for them. But who's going to prosecute or sanction or even hold accountable in any way the U.S., EU, and NATO forces in any of their war crimes? No one. And that in itself is a crime against humanity. Follow Luke Mon Nation on Patreon.com slash Luke Mon Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to it by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By any means necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We're now happy to be joined by Tina Landis, an organizer and author of the book Climate Solutions Beyond Capitalism. Tina, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And Tina, here recently, there was uh, uh, another report from the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, that uh, basically spoke to the uh, importance of really drastically and uh, uh, immediately uh, sort of engaging in actions that will really stave off climate disaster, uh, I believe, uh, basically centered around uh, the, the use of fossil fuels and things like this, among other things. And it also the report had some uh, pretty sharp words for, you know, different government and business leaders who were basically saying one thing about um, addressing climate change while doing actually very little. And and uh, I was hoping you could help us understand uh, just what was said uh, in this report and, and what do you think it means for us uh, in this moment, Tina, as it seems increasingly we're reaching a, a now or never kind of moment. Yeah, I just want to start by saying that we shouldn't see these reports from the UN as alarmist. They're really the consensus of thousands of scientists internationally that come together to, you know, give the data and put these to these reports together. So. 
we should take them very seriously. Um, but yeah, we're, you know, the pledges that came out of COP26 in November had us on track for 2.4 or 2.7 degrees of warming, which is catastrophic. And, and apparently we're, we're actually, the actions of governments right now have us on track for more like three degrees Celsius warming, which is even worse. I mean, that's an unlivable planet. Um, so yeah, I mean, unfortunately these, the UN has no enforcement capacity, so governments make these commitments, but there's no enforcement mechanism to make them stick to to it. So um, the result is they, you know, they just don't implement them if they economically don't want to. And it's really political will. It's not that we don't have the technology. Actually, renewable energy, solar, wind, battery storage is actually getting cheaper and cheaper, and it's actually more affordable now than fossil fuel energy production. So there's really no excuse other than that the system of capitalism really can't make quick, rapid shifts and um, can't do it in a comprehensive way because the corporations really have the power, not the government. Um, But it is a really frightening report. Um, You know, it, it means that, you know, people, most people alive today will see warming reach dangerous levels unless action is taken. So it's a very, very urgent situation. But there's simple things that can be done, you know, even under capitalism that can change things like greening cities more and, you know, reducing methane emissions and electrifying transit and, you know, just moving away from cutting cutting the use of fossil fuels. It's all possible. But unfortunately, another U.N. report that came out just before the COP26 um, summit in November showed that there's plans in place for fossil fuel extraction that would put us that that are two times more greenhouse gases than, than what's needed to stay at 1.5 degrees Celsius warming. So, you know, these fossil fuel companies are just like moving ahead as they always do- have done. They've known since the 50s that what they were producing was going to cause this warming, and they're just going ahead with their plans because it's profitable. I mean, governments globally need to make it not profitable for fossil fuel companies. They need to be shut down. They need to be, you know, transitioned, you know, to a renewable system, renewable energy system. Um, it's really, and here in our country, Biden, Biden's um, budget proposal that he that he brought up, I think it was last week, allocates only forty five billion to anything related to climate. And even though that $45 billion is not, um, it will not reduce emissions, it's to think going to things like wildfire prevention and, you know, hiring more firefighters, weatherizing buildings, and some of it goes to the military to shore up their installations for extreme weather. So it's, it's, it's like a reactive plan. It's not in any way addressing the root cause of climate change. Yeah. And, you know, Tina, the U.N. Secretary uh, General, Antonio Gutierrez, actually uh, said something uh, uh, that addresses the fact that governments and businesses are not doing what they said they were doing. He said that they're flat out lying. He said some governments and business leaders are saying one thing but doing another. Simply put, they are lying and the results will be catastrophic. And you just said that the Biden administration is actually including funding for, you know, giving the Defense Department more money to do whatever it is that they're supposed to do, shoring up installations, these, I guess, 800 military bases around the world. Considering the fact that the U.S. military, the Department of Defense, is the largest polluter of the planet, on the planet, 
I mean, what does this mean for uh, the U.S. in this in this uh, um, push to save us from climate catastrophe when we have a politician that people said that they would push left to get things done to save humanity, but he is just, you know, saying, nope, I'm really not going to do it. I'm going to give the Department of Defense more money to not only continue imperialist war, but continue polluting the planet in pursuit of those imperialist wars. How do people push that guy left? Right. I mean, that, that calls for you know mass sustained movement in the streets until we get what we need. But yeah, I mean, the, the system, you know, perpetuates itself. It's the, the, the people who get into office at that level really are just holding up the status quo. And the, the capitalism and imperialist system is completely the antithesis of what is needed to address climate change. We can't continue on the U.S. government going around the world like imposing regime change and bombing countries and you know disrupting their economies through sanctions and blockades. I mean, all of that undermines any chance of sustainable development. We need cooperation globally. We need sharing of resources. And the U.S. war machine is a complete opposite of that. And, and like you said, it's the biggest consumer of fossil fuels. Um, you know, they talk about, I think Pelosi made a comment that, you know, they're going to, they're going to green, they're going to make renewable like fighter jets and things like, I mean, that's just ludicrous. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they need to just, it needs to be dismantled, the war machine, all these bases need to be shut down, all this, you know, equipment scrapped, not, not making it green. I mean, the whole concept of imperialism and war, I mean, goes against what is needed for humanity's survival. Yo, greening imperialism is nasty. That's nasty work, man. But that's that is precisely what, you know, the Pelosi's of the world and all these ruling class officials really have. Like, basically, let's have a, you know, hip, quote unquote, progressive sheen on these things that cause so much suffering and destruction and exploitation. And I was all and speaking of imperialism, you know, I was also thinking about how, you know, even how the, the war in Ukraine is impacting this because countries like uh, the United Kingdom and the U.S. are considering, you know, ramping up uh, fossil fuels as a, a response to this, of course, as you know, uh, the Biden administration, you know, bans uh, Russian energy imports and things like that. And, uh, uh, you know, attacks on the Nordstrom Nord Stream 2 pipeline and all these sorts of things. I mean, the whole issue around um, energy resources and fuel is definitely an aspect to that whole issue that I think is somewhat underplayed. But I mean, from what we're seeing in this report, team, I mean, it seems like what's needed is really the exact opposite. And isn't it funny? That when it comes to this issue of climate change, an issue that we know has its root in capitalism, right, that these same capitalist governments seem to always want to choose more capitalist uh, policies and actions to try to solve something that's caused by uh, capitalism itself. You know what I mean? So it's just this it's the it, it, it on its face. It seems unreasonable at best and at worst completely insane. But in truth, Tina, what we're looking at is the logic of capital and about how even if the system is what's creating and exacerbating the problem, somehow it's also the solution. And so it seems to me then that we really do need to look beyond capitalism for these climate solutions to not only address climate change, but to reshape the whole of society. 
Absolutely. I mean, we can't, under capitalism, the way that climate solutions are looked at, it's through, you know, regulation of industry, incentives to industry to, you know, give them subsidies or tax breaks to, to do the right thing. Um, you know, maybe some some bi- fines for violations of air quality or, or whatever water quality rules. But that's that's not enough at this point. I mean, this is this is a very urgent crisis, global crisis. We need major transformations of how we relate to the planet we live on. That is our only chance of survival. And capitalism relies on endless growth and endless profits. And it, it allows corporations to decide what is produced and how much is produced and what's extracted. And, you know, it, there's no controls, real controls over industry um, that make much difference. So, yeah, we need we really do need we need to build for socialism. We need a mass people's movement that forces change, systemic change, because socialism would, you know, socialism looks at what resources are needed for society and the planet and plans accordingly. It's a planned economy, unlike the the anarchic system of capitalism, which is just a free for all. And we see where that's gotten us since Industrial Revolution and how much the emissions have gone up and environmental degradation and all of it. I mean, it's not sustainable. It's the opposite of sustainability. One thing the UN Secretary General said in his speech when this this report came out was he, he said that climate activists are often called called dangerous radicals, but it's actually the countries investing in fossil fuels that are the dangerous radicals. I thought that was very, very um, appropriate <laughs> wording. And, and that's why, you know, we really need we, the people, are the ones who are going to make the change. We can't look to these leaders who don't care about humanity's survival. We need to take action in our own hands. We need to organize our communities and make the change that's needed because otherwise this is a sinking ship and it's going down fast. So it's up to us to intervene, really. Yeah, it is definitely up to us to intervene. And I thought what was very interesting uh, about this report there, that there, uh, uh, the working group uh, made recommendations. And the very first recommendation was that coal must be effectively phased out if the world is to stay within 1.5 uh, uh, centigrade um, uh, uh, warming. I, I don't think people understand, Tina, how much of the world relies upon coal. We think of it, I think, particularly in this country, especially us city dwellers, as an outmoded form of fuel. But in many places in the world, it's really not. And and I'm wondering if you can speak to that a little bit, how much of a, a big deal coal really still is in energy, uh, the energy needs that people are meeting around the world. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's still used in this country, too. I mean, I, I grew up in Pennsylvania and there's still a lot of it's still it's still cold country out there. But, yeah, I mean, a lot of the countries of the global south, due to, you know, the legacy of colonialism, they, there's this development gap and they're still rely. They still rely a lot on these dirty energy um, sources for, for power. Um, so which speaks to why, you know, the global north needs to give assistance to the the, the countries of the global south to help sus- bring about sustainable development. I mean, in the several UN climate summits, the, the global north committed to giving these financial um, assistance, like one trillion a year to global south countries to help develop, but they have yet to pay up, of course. They just keep skirting the issue. But, um, but yeah, so there is that lack of, you know, development in certain areas, but 
um, one other thing that the UN report stated was that, you know, the richest 10% of the world, meaning mainly the countries of the global north and the ruling class of those countries, the top percentages of the countries, um, are responsible for one-third to to one-half of greenhouse gas emissions, all greenhouse gas emissions. So it speaks to, you know, the global north countries need to do way more. They have the capacity to transition quicker. They have the technologies, um, the wealth to make it happen. And they are responsible for more of the emissions problem. So, um, so yes, we need to, it's a dual path. We need to have rapid transitions here in the global north, but also assistance to the global south to get off these dirty, dirty um, fossil fuels. But we, we can't point the finger because it's really the history of imperialism and the history of colonialism that has created this divide in development around the world. Yeah. And, you know, we often um, when we discuss these uh, climate issues, Tina, talk about how insufficient the um, media coverage is of it, particularly in terms of actually putting forth solutions. And it's really important, of course, that we get this kind of information across to as many people as possible. And it's my understanding that you have a speaking tour coming up uh, around just this issue. And so I was hoping you kind of, you know, let us know some information about that. Where can folks go to learn more? Uh, How can they plug in? Yeah, so starting on April 23rd in Houston, um, we'll be launching a, a nationwide speaking tour. I'll be going to 21 cities over between end of April and through the summer. Um, so you can find information. It's not up yet, but it will be in the next week or so. The, the tour schedule will be posted on liberationnews.org. So you can check there. You can also sign up to get email announcements so you get you get plugged into any announcements we have about the tour. But yeah. Hoping to really reach more people, you know, now that COVID, we're, we're at a lull, at least in COVID, I can go out and like speak around the country and really reach more people on these issues and hopefully inspire more activism around it. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Tina, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Watch 10 DC. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about uh, how China is continuing to grapple with the coronavirus pandemic. And we're very happy to be joined for this conversation today by K.J. No a scholar, educator, and journalist focusing on the political economy and geopolitics of the Asia-Pacific. He's also a member of Veterans for Peace and senior correspondent with Flashpoints on KPFA. KJ, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. Absolutely. And KJ, we've seen recently in Shanghai some serious efforts to um, ramp up uh, uh, the containment of the coronavirus pandemic as uh, that municipality uh, is facing some, you know, serious issues uh, with outbreaks of COVID-19, uh, reportedly uh, one of the worst uh, since the first outbreak in Wuhan. And I was looking at a piece in the Global Times that said there were 38,000 plus 
uh, member medical support teams from over 15 different regions in China that were coming over uh, to uh, the municipality. And, uh, you know, they've got stronger means through which that they can detect the virus, uh, more uh, personnel, equipment, and all these sorts of things. I think it's sort of broadly reflected in how we've seen China uh, address COVID-19 in general. And I was hoping you could help us understand, you know, just what it is that we're seeing in Shanghai and uh, how is it that this kind of response uh, is, has seemingly been so effective for China in the time since the first outbreak? Yes, uh, thank you. These are really important questions. The first thing is we have to understand is that China has always focused on NPIs or non-pharmaceutical interventions to deal with the disease. That is essentially what it does is if there is an outbreak, uh, then what they do is they test, they track, they trace, and they isolate. And sometimes the isolation involves large groups of people, especially if it's already quite uh, spread out. And in the case of Shanghai, uh, it, it was already uh, fairly, fairly um, you know, endemic. And so what they did was they tested the entire city, 25 million people, which is kind of incredible, but not so incredible if you consider that, you know, you have a population that understands the value of NPIs and you bring 38,000 medical workers to bear on it, then you can deal with it. This is in contrast to, you know, many Western countries, which essentially have had a herd immunity approach, which is essentially to let it rip and and to cull the weakest, let them die, which has happened largely in populations where people are working class, working in difficult situations where families live together in close proximity with each other, refugees, immigrants, and blue-collar workers. So this is a complete difference in philosophy and orientation. The other thing that's worthwhile to note about China is uh, they do not have mandatory vaccination. They have vaccination rates of about 80%, but they only require vaccination if you are willing. Uh, sorry, they don't require it. You, vaccination is a completely uh, voluntary act. So unless you're in the military or certain sectors of the civil service or medical service, it's, uh, you know, it's based on the notion of free, prior, and informed consent. And so once again, they're focusing on the NPIs, focusing on testing, tracking, tracing, isolation, and they're able to they're able to do this at scale. Essentially, they're showing that if you do this at scale, uh, you can make it work. The tricky piece about this particular outbreak is it seems to be the BA two variant of the Omicron, which is incredibly. Uh, fast spreading. It seems to be less virulent, but it has tremendous replicative uh, capacity uh, at the same time that it seems to spread in a very asymptomatic fashion. And so this is why they have the mass testing rather than, uh, you know, the more targeted testing that they've done in the past. Yeah, and the fact that uh, the vaccination rate is at 80%, but there is no requirement 
for vaccination. But there's also not been a single severe case that has emerged from Shanghai, not even a a fatality, uh, which is in opposition to Wuhan, which recorded, you know, over 3,500 COVID-19 deaths since April of 2020. How did Shanghai achieve an 80% voluntary vaccination rate um, and no severe cases, not one fatality from COVID-19 um, amid emerging variants and with the need to continue to lock down as these variants emerge. I mean, how do how does Chinese society convince people to vaccinate without making it a requirement? You know, it's through good education. The framing is that, um, you know, this is the science uh, and we know the science works. And, you know, just to go back a little bit on the history, China has been using inoculation for about a thousand years. They invented the concept of inoculation with uh, smallpox, smallpox variolation. You see them doing this, you know, in the 10th century. And then by the 15th century, you know, the the protocols have actually been standardized. So there's a long history and tradition of inoculating against diseases combined with the trust in the party, which, you know, is about 95 percent at the current moment. And the good uh, messaging, the good public health messaging around science People are choosing to vaccinate. Now, that said, not everybody wants to vaccinate. They may have their own reasons not to vaccinate, but there's no coercion involved. So if I'm going to a school, a high school, nobody requires that I be vaccinated. If I'm, you know, doing my work, nobody requires me to be vaccinated. It's just a different approach. The idea is that through good communication, through good science education, and through a sense of solidarity, people will do the right thing. And that is very different from what we're seeing in many other countries in the West. Yeah. And, you know, for me, uh, here in the U.S., of course, as we, you know, continue to stare down uh, the barrel at a million deaths from coronavirus, I mean, depending on um, who you ask and, and what report you read, some, some might say that we've already uh, hit and surpassed a million deaths. I mean, the approach is 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 just so <laughs> different. It is, I mean, that's such an in, insufficient way of describing it. I would go so far as to say, you know, the U.S. is guilty of criminal negligence in terms of how it has handled or really uh, uh, mishandled the corona pandemic, while at the same time stigmatizing and attacking China for doing just that well. You know what I mean? It's both under Donald Trump and now under Joe Biden, and particularly now under Biden, as his administration seems to be pushing for a kind of COVID normalization piece. Let's relax masking mandates and all these sorts of things and rolling it back. You know, the things that, you know, we were criticizing uh, Republicans and right wingers for not that long ago now seems to be sort of the order of the day. And so, I mean, from the economic system to the social solidarity that you're describing in um, China, KJ, I mean, it just feels like, uh, you know, it it couldn't be more different from the picture uh, that we see here in the U.S. And uh, the basic difference seems to be both, you know, uh, systemic and cultural, you know? Absolutely. It's both systemic and cultural. And it boils down to the fact that you have a system that values lives, that every life 
is valuable. I remember early in the Wuhan outbreak, they did a double lung transplant uh, on, uh, you know, a, a person, a, a sick person who was 100 years old. You would never do this in the United States because human life is not valued in that way. But they saw this person as an elder, a parent, somebody who is a loved person to others, and they, they spared no expense. The government did a double lung transplant for a 100-year-old man who, to, to, as, as far as I know, is, is, is living healthy at this point. So it's a difference in values. Do you value human lives or do you value profits? And once again, I agree with you absolutely. You know, a, a million deaths is not simply criminal negligence. We're approaching, you know, levels of, you know, ethnocide, mm. you know, with, with that, uh, you know, with that level. And plus the fact that we are not even counting deaths. Deaths are not even required to be reported anymore. When Donald Trump said that he would stop testing, he was, you know, uh, taken through the ringer for his, you know, anti-scientific approach. But now the Biden administration has said that, you know, we no longer require the daily reporting of deaths. Uh, these are, this is the double standard, you know, which is so extraordinary. And all of this, once again, you know, comes back to the way in which we are irrational, profit-oriented, and also uh, undermining one of the really good examples that we could learn from, which is China, by stigmatizing China, by dismissing first the disease as a Chinese disease, take, not taking it seriously, and then taking all the measures that China did as good non-pharmaceutical interventions by characterizing that as some kind of oriental despotism. Uh, the U.S. deeply and fundamentally undermined its capacity to respond in a humane, ethical, and responsible fashion to this disease. And hence, here we are, you know, uh, you know, a million deaths and climbing, and still no real accountability, no real understanding, and a cut papering over, and the pretending that endemicity itself is not dangerous. They're endemic dangerous and endemic diseases that continue to be dangerous and also mistaking the acute nature or the attenuated nature of the acute phase of the COVID uh, and disregarding the long-term aspects of chronic COVID. I think these are, uh, you know, fundamental uh, acts of medical and social malpractice. For sure. And, you know, people are going to think you're exaggerating when you use words like, you know, ethnocide to describe the U.S.'s uh, uh, response to the pandemic. But in truth, if you look at the very clear sort of race and class uh, implications of how this has played out, well, it doesn't seem uh, uh, so out of bounds. But we thank you so much, as always, KJ, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back so please stay with us by any means necessary welcome back to by any means necessary on radio sputnik in washington dc I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And 
It's Tuesday, which means we're having our weekly segment, Tech for the People, where we're joined by technologist Chris Garoppa, the editor of techforthepeople.org and co-host of the Reboot Podcast. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, as always, great to be back. Thank you. Absolutely. And Chris, it's being reported that Elon Musk uh, now owns uh, a share of Twitter and uh, as a part of joining their board of directors. And I'm not really sure what to say, but I'm definitely wondering what you think uh, this means and how it may impact Twitter as a platform moving forward. Yeah, this is a wild story just breaking this morning. Uh, Elon Musk recently purchased a 9.2% stake in Twitter. Uh, He's only able legally to hold up to 15%, so uh, 9.2%, you know, nearly two-thirds of that. And Twitter is appointing Musk to to its board of directors. Um, The CEO of Twitter, Parag Aguaro, you know, put out some tweets this morning saying that Musk is a passionate believer and intense critic of the service, which is exactly what we need on Twitter and in the boardroom. Uh, I mean, you know, it's been hard to figure out what to make of this uh, because, you know, Musk has been very critical of Twitter in the past. He has been uh, you know, saying that uh, Twitter is doesn't have doesn't value free speech enough, which I mean, you know, a broken clock is still uh, right twice a day. Um, but he's you know he's not somebody that I think is going to be you know moving Twitter in the direction of what people you know the users need. Um, you know, Musk. I mean, obviously, this guy is a multi-billionaire. He's extremely wealthy. Uh, one of the things that he's been pushing is cryptocurrency uh, and this whole Web three concept. And Twitter has already been working in that direction. They have been testing out features where, if you own an NFT, you can make it your profile picture, and you have a special instead of being in a circle, it's like a, a hexagon or something um, that shows up if you have an NFT verified. Uh, as your profile picture, and their Twitter's uh, crypto and NFT and Web three team has actually been, you know, doing interviews recently, saying that they're going to, you know, continue expanding Twitter's presence in the Web three space. And I think that's, you know, a response to Facebook, uh, you know, bringing in NFTs into its metaverse concept, of course, and also just seeing the massive amount of money and investment happening in this general, um, you know, NFT space. So I think, you know, Elon Musk is certainly going to be pushing the company in that direction. He did a couple days ago or so put out a, uh, a poll on Twitter asking people if they'd like an edit button. And the CEO of Twitter responded, the consequences of this poll will be important, and then said people should, quote, vote carefully. Um, so, you know, an edit button is something that people have wanted on Twitter for a long time. I mean, I see that move as extremely coordinated to say, like, look, oh, Elon Musk is going to be good for the company. Like, people have been asking for an edit button so you can fix a typo in your tweet for, for years. Um, but really, I, th- I think it's actually, it's really just meant to uh, push Musk, you know, push the idea of Musk as a good part of the Twitter board. Um, so much remains to be seen. Musk will be on the board for probably about two years at this point. Um, and his, you know, this is a large share of a company that millions and millions of people rely on every day. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would appreciate that edit button. And I, and I think I would be happy if that actually comes to fruition. But I also see Elon Musk doing the same kind of thing with like, say, oh, posting a poll asking people, should we coo the government in a country where I can get my lithium for my batteries for my Teslas? Or, you know, should uh, United Auto Workers uh, form a union um, and and should Tesla automakers follow suit? And this is, I think, where that little helpful thing that uh, Elon Musk is trying to do with his poll for an edit button, I I don't know. I'm always the cynical one on the show. I really think that that little nice rich guy thing that he is going to do with this edit button poll, I think these kinds of things are really not far off with Elon Musk on the board of Twitter, which could be disastrous. But also, Chris, if we're careful, if we leftist socialists play our cards right, actually might work in our favor. I don't know. What do you think? No, I don't think it could. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think it could work in our favor uh, having somebody like Musk who, you know, actually tweet. He doesn't need to do a poll because he in the past tweeted, we'll coup whoever we want uh, when talking about, uh, I believe it was Bolivia, right? You know, he, he said that before. I mean, even Grimes, his now semi or ex-partner, depending on who you believe, you know, was like, Elon, don't don't say these things. Um, I mean, at this point, his, you know, he's also been in trouble with the SEC because he made some tweets a, a few years ago about uh, saying that he had secured funding to take Tesla private at uh, $420 a share. And for a while, an attorney had to approve his tweets before he posted them. I'm not clear if uh, that is still the situation for this man. You know, unfortunately, I don't think that the kind of the, the kind of speech that we want to maintain on Twitter, you know, having being able to not have accounts shut down for telling the truth. I don't think he's going to do that. In fact, just this morning, uh, make Twitter great again is trending on the site and it's supporters of Donald Trump calling for Musk to reinstate Donald Trump's account. And let's let's never forget that the worst thing to happen to Donald Trump after January 6th was losing his Twitter account. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's uh, pretty wild. It'll definitely be interesting to see uh, how this plays out. You know, there's another issue I want to touch on with you as well, uh, Chris, that to me is deeply interesting. And that is that uh, Meta, the parent company of Facebook, is paying one of the biggest Republican consulting firms in the U.S. Uh, to basically help them turn public opinion against TikTok which uh, I think they see as a competitor, certainly for uh, uh, younger social media users. But uh, tell us what's going on here with this, Chris. Oh, yeah. TikTok is absolutely a competitor for for Meta's platforms, for particularly for Facebook and Instagram. I mean, look, when you come when it comes down to it, right, TikTok. Facebook stories uh, and Instagram reels are effectively the same thing. Just like, you know, when stories first came out, it was just about, you know, it was basically Facebook and whoever else copying Snapchat. I mean, none of these features are original by the time everyone is using them. Just this streaming video feed. Sometimes I get lost. I'm like, which app am I even in right now? Am I on Facebook, Instagram, or TikTok? I forget, you know, I'm like, because it's been 20 minutes and you're just still watching something and you forget where you are, right? I mean, this is, none of this is original, but Facebook, and, and we learned this 
from the Facebook whistleblower Francis Haugen last year, um, teens spend two to three times as much time on TikTok than on Instagram. And Facebook itself is seen kind of like as an old people's platform rather yep. than these platforms that are focused on video. Uh, you know, quick 10 to 30 second videos, even shorter, um, where you have to, you know, in Instagram's case, click through to even see a longer clip of it. I mean, this this firm that they hired targeted victory. Um one of the staffers wrote, dream would be to get stories with headlines like, quote, from dances to danger, how TikTok has become the most harmful social media space for kids. I mean, we're talking about Facebook here. If we're talking about the dangers of social media, we have to talk about Facebook um, just with its outsized influence. And of course, there is a geopolitical aspect to this because uh, a targeted victory is also you know, uh, exploiting the fact that uh, TikTok is owned by a Chinese company. Um, and certainly what they've tr- been trying to say is that, uh, you know, this app is foreign owned and it's sharing data with, you know, the Chinese Communist Party. And like your information is all going to Beijing uh, and ByteDance is owned by the Chinese. And so there's this like racist, you know, aspect of this that they're trying to use as well. And of course, we have seen those stories like these stories are real stories that we have seen out there. And now we know that a lot of them and I'm not saying every reporter who's ever talked about this is, you know, being you know, duped by targeted victory. But, you know, we've seen a lot of really overblown concern about TikTok when it's, you know, Instagram and Facebook and, you know, some of these other sites that are really the ones doing the worst of the worst when it comes to information gathering on teens and young users. I mean, Facebook even knows that uh, young people are using Messenger. Um, and there's even a Messenger for Kids app. So if they're talking about targeting young folks, teens and preteens, Um, You know, Facebook is doing exactly that. This isn't a concern for people's safety. It's a concern for Facebook and Meta's own market share as they try to figure out how to pivot into this metaverse concept. Yeah. And, you know, the geopolitical aspect of things, I think, is noteworthy because there was even um, a letter to the editor that ran in the Denver Post that officials from Targeted Victory helped to orchestrate. Now, this letter was supposedly from a, quote, concerned new parent that was raising these issues about, you know, TikTok's impacts on, you know, the mental health of children, the data, the, the data privacy issues that you were noting. And it said that, quote, many people even suspect China is deliberately deliberately collecting behavioral data on our kids. Now, what the Chinese Communist Party could possibly want or even do with behavioral data on U.S. kids, I mean, who knows? But, you know, when there's kind of this overarching uh, villainous stigma that's, you know, around China that's rooted in this racist yellow peril sort of ideology, well, then it starts to make a little more sense, at least in terms of that logic. But I just want people to understand, like, even just what this company even is. I mean, Targeted Victory was launched uh, by a guy named Zach Moffat, who was a digital director for the 2012 presidential campaign for Mitt Romney. So it's basically a Republican a digital consulting firm that's now being used by the supposedly progressive, supposedly kind of liberal forward thinking um, tech, uh, you know, billionaire in um, Mark Zuckerberg in terms of Meta and Facebook. And, you know, and I also got to say, and this is an aside, Chris, 
I just don't think Facebook is going to be able to like reclaim these young people. I just don't, but precisely because of what you said is that because young folks, and I'm speaking of, you know, Gen Z and younger, the people, a generation behind me and the kids after them, you are correct when you say that they view Facebook as an old people's social media site. And I don't know that there's anything that Facebook can do to really change that perception, except for what they're doing in terms of trying to, like, gin up basically opposition research on TikTok, which sounds wild to say. But when you consider that we're talking about dynamics between two corporations, it makes uh, all the sense in the world. And I feel like I should also note, Chris, that while Meta is, uh, you know, trying to say that, um you know, a TikTok is some kind of um, special threat to young people. I mean, I remember not that long ago, we were talking about, um, you know, uh, uh, reports that were coming down in Forbes and other platforms about how Instagram, which um, Meta owns, is um, harmful to, you know, the self-esteem of young women and things like this. And so what's nasty about this to me is how it's this pretending to care about the mental health or welfare of young people while not really doing much even within their own platform, speaking of meta, to really uh, uh, address this. And so to me, it's kind of a cynical, pretty transparent way of simply trying to shade another company while not, you know, sweeping around your own front door, as it were. You know what I mean? Right. I mean, the, the timing of all of this, you know, has really come like their work with targeted victory really, you know, came around the, the a lot of the post-Cambridge Analytica attention that Facebook was getting. You know, I mean, remember all of the hearings, and we've talked about so many of them on this segment uh, in this show, uh, the hearings where Zuckerberg and Sandberg and so many others were pulled in front of Congress and asked about the dangers that their platforms, uh, you know, pose to children um, and to everyone, really. I mean, when, when we're looking at this, right, the, the question is, what what does Facebook get from this? What is Meta looking to do, not just short term, but long term? And Facebook also, you know, they have this history of, uh, you know, trying to snuff out their competitors. It's why they bought Instagram in the first place back in you know, 2011 or 2012. I mean, they spent a huge amount of money on, on Instagram and on WhatsApp, uh, and they buy smaller companies like Oculus all the time. And so this is their plan. This is exactly what they want to do. I mean, they're not going to buy. I, I, I will say now they're not going to try to buy TikTok. I think they are too afraid of the you know Chinese connection here. Um, but they want to make sure they want TikTok to be extinguished. And let's not forget that TikTok almost was extinguished in the U.S. under President Trump when he ordered the company to be sold to an American owner. Now, that didn't happen. There was a reprieve basically given on that ruling. Um, but that that nearly did happen. And that would have been amazing for Facebook. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think we should ever expect anything good to come from a monopoly. And yes, Facebook absolutely is or meta if you want to give them their legal name, I suppose, absolutely is a tech social media monopoly. Um, and, and I do feel a little attacked that Facebook is considered an old people's app. I kind of like Facebook, but that's me. But 
I mean, monopolies are never good. And and Amazon is acting exactly like the monopoly it is, uh, also using their own little worker chat app, which would ban certain words uh, that employees would not be able to use. And obviously those words, uh, you know, are things that are critical of Amazon. So how is Amazon? Um, restricting uh, you workers' use of their own chat app and acting like a typical monopoly company does in controlling free speech. Yeah, this is some uh, some interesting information that has come through the Intercept, and of course, we have to say congratulations to the Amazon workers in Staten Island uh, for unionizing and becoming the first. Amazon, uh, you know, workers in history to unionize uh, at an Amazon warehouse. And of course, we also have to recognize that the workers in Bessemer have been voting. That vote is very close. And so we are watching the outcome of that. And Amazon is terrified of the fact that workers are organizing and that they are gaining support and winning. And so a new Amazon chat app uh, that workers in the in the company could you know could potentially be using um, is going to block words like restrooms and slave labor and plantation and get this freedom. They're going to block the word freedom, um, coalition or committee. Uh, grievance. Those things are potentially going to be blocked if Amazon launches this app. Now, Amazon has said, we're not you know, necessarily going to launch this. If we did, that might not be the word list that we use, which is like very tricky language, right? To say like, well, we could block stuff. Um, I think it's really important, you know, to keep in mind too, like this also has happened with other companies. Facebook has a product called Facebook Workplace that it sells to other companies to do, you know, it's like a Facebook for work where you have internal message boards and groups, just like you would on, on you know, uh, your public, your personal Facebook account. And when Facebook was kind of showing off this feature a few years ago, they used the word union to show as an example of language that they would flag or not allow. So Amazon certainly isn't the first company, but we're seeing, you know, Amazon pick up, they spent millions and millions of dollars on anti-union campaigns, and they see that they're losing. Really important thing to keep in mind, if you are at work, if you are using a work device on a work network, um, assume that they are watching everything you say, even if it's in a private DM conversation, um, even if you're not using their specific chat app, um, always assume that anything you're doing at work or on a work device can be monitored. Uh, it's so important for, you know, uh, Christian Smalls said over 50 other Amazon locations have reached out to um, reached out to him in, in the past few days to try to get help unionizing. So as this grows and spreads across the country, he said that I think that's really important for people to keep in mind. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Chris, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, 
social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Tuesday, April 5th, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. And at that time, you'll be able to give us a ring at 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. Our operators are standing by. You can also download our shows on sputniknews.com slash radio underscore by underscore any underscore means. And we're streaming live on rumble.com slash C as in cat slash B A M necessary. You can hear us on 105.5 FM and 1390 AM on your dial here in DC. But wherever you are in this world, we most certainly want to hear from you. And we're very happy to be joined for the hour today by Eleanor Goldfield, a creative activist, journalist, co-host of Project Censored, and the filmmaker behind the documentary Hard Road of Hope. Eleanor, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. And Eleanor, uh, the Joe Biden administration has plans to extend the moratorium on uh, payments on federal student loans yet again, uh, this time through the end of August. And um, this you know, announcement is expected soon, and it comes as the current moratorium was set to end on May 1st. And if that were to happen, it would have impacted more than 40 million people in the United States. Although I think I should note that the August 31 extension is uh, quite a bit shorter than what uh, Democrats, a lot of them uh, were actually hoping for, which, uh, you know, uh, again, kind of sets the stage for another struggle around this before the midterm elections. And I got to say, Eleanor, it really strikes me about how U.S. President Joe Biden wakes up every day and consciously decides to not end uh, student loan debt, even though he could. He has the ability to do that as president. But like a number of things we could name that would be of great value and benefit to the masses of people in this country, it's just shrugged off. It's not uh, centered as a priority. You know what I mean? And here again, as we move, you know, slowly towards the uh, midterms here and this year, of course, in 2022, uh, it it's just wild about how Democrats are still going to expect people to show up for them and support them and all these sorts of things, even as, you know, they continue to either break promises or not deliver things that they promised, or they'll, you know, kick the can down the road and do these kind of uh, Band-Aid measures for some other issues. And the fact that they just keep, you know, being these extensions and extensions. I mean, the thing about extensions is they end always, they always end, but a cancellation is permanent. 
And so in, in, in having a look at that and seeing that, you know, the Democrats sort of continue uh, down this path that's, you know, so harmful for poor working and oppressed people in this country as the right wing in the U.S. seems to be poised to make a real uh, play for power here. I mean, it frankly just doesn't, I think, paint a great picture for how things may uh, turn out here, Eleanor, as uh, conditions here continue to deteriorate. Yeah, Sean, I, I, and you make great points. And this really is, as you pointed out, kind of the M.O. of the Democrats. And I think it's also worth noting that Biden had a huge hand in uh, the student debt crisis that we're seeing right now, which is $1.5 trillion in student loan debt, which really is an amount that I, I can't even, I don't even know what that means. Um, and these, these are numbers that are so large, they're greater than the GDPs of most countries. And yet this is a debt uh, that is weighing down an entire generation. And as many economists have pointed out, uh, this is this is one this is one easy way that you could lift, you know, this concept of lifting a bunch of boats at once, not just the billionaire's yachts. This is that concept in action. If you were to forgive this student loan debt, you would lift the economic realities of of millions of people in the United States, but that's not how this—that's uh, not how the system works. And Democrats are, of course, uh, you know, they are protectors of this system. And as I said, Biden had a had a part to play in this. In 2005, there was a vote to basically, uh, as we see today, uh, strike student loan. Uh, uh, people who had student loans, strike them from eligibility to declare bankruptcy. So today, for instance, if you declare bankruptcy, uh, then you are still, you, you still have to pay back your student loan. And this is something that happened in 2005 uh, due to a vote. And Biden supported this vote. Uh, and as somebody, uh, as a uh, professor, a law professor, Melissa Jacoby at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, pointed out uh, in an article from, you know, a few years ago about this, this subject, uh, she said that Biden was one of the most powerful people who could have said no, who could have changed this. Instead, he used his leadership role to limit the ability of other Democrats who had concerns and who wanted the bill softened, end quote. So she basically highlights, once again, Bill Biden, who, uh, and, you know, on the campaign trail, uh, and this article was written in 2019, was all about getting rid of student loan. Oh, we're going to forgive student loan debt. And, of course, as soon as he comes into office, it's, we're going to forgive this much. No, we're actually doing this much. Actually, we can't. We're going to kick the can. Actually, no, we're not even kicking the can. Uh, and so this is so typical. And once again, just like we saw with the crime bill, just like we see with his entire career, Biden is part of the problem, is uh, the creator of these problems that he then campaigns against, right? He campaigns about uh, racial equity and he campaigns about getting rid of student loan debt and being the quote-unquote climate candidate. And yet, if you look at his entire career, he has done the opposite of what he promised to do and what he is actually doing now. And it's really disgusting and infuriating and sad that people continue to fall for this. Uh, you know, for instance, living in the District of Columbia, more than 90 percent of voters here voted for Joe Biden for president. That is an astonishing amount of, uh, of goldfish-like memory, uh, and it is an astonishing amount of cognitive dissonance uh, and just ignorance when it comes to recognizing the career path and the career history of Biden and, as you pointed out, Sean, really any Democrat. Yeah, I mean, and it's, it is striking to me that, well, first of all, this announcement comes after there was a pretty massive demonstration um, 
uh, yesterday um, of people pushing to extend really to cancel student loan debt. And, and we know this because when myself and a couple of uh, Black Alliance for Peace comrades were out doing our banner drop over on LaFont Plaza over the 395 uh, Expressway, a bunch of young folks, and I mean, they were really were like college students or just, you know, graduated from college, walked by and asked, hey, what are your banners saying? We told them, like, oh, great. Can, can we help? And they did help out, and that was cool. So they said, you know, we just came from the uh, uh, from the uh, protest to cancel student loan debt. So this, on the one hand, this is an example of how people power does work. On the other hand, Eleanor, the way Biden instead responds to the demand to cancel student loan debt is to extend the moratorium for another few months. That is, I think, the reality that we are faced with when we're talking about pushing this administration or any other administration to the left. They're not going to be pushed to the left. They're going to do exactly what Biden is doing, kicking the can down the road if they do anything at all, so that somebody else has to continue to deal with this issue. When the reality is, if the United States government could extend the moratorium as long as it has, which it certainly had, it can absolutely afford to cancel these debts. But it's just not a commitment that anyone in this government is willing to make, not because it's not fis fiscally uh, uh, feasible, not because they can't afford it, Eleanor, but because they literally just really don't care about the impact that this debt has on the people who are carrying it. And I, I I don't know any other way to say that than look at the way Biden has responded to folks demanding that student loan be canceled with another moratorium, with another extension of the moratorium. And that just, to me, speaks to how little he really does care about us. Yeah, absolutely, Jackie. I 100% agree. And it, it, it reminds me a lot of the way that politicians talk about climate change, the ones that do. Uh, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna phase out coal by 2050. Oh well, that's good for you. You're gonna be dead by then, so you don't have to care. You get a gold star for saying something about phasing out coal, and you know that you're not gonna actually ever have to uh, deliver on that. And you're 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 basically assuming that the people after you won't either. They'll kick that can uh, as well. And so, and this is really, I, I feel like this is really the the, the that mo of the Democrats again saying that they believe in something, saying that they believe about, that, that they, that they uh, you know, want to help people, but then never actually manifesting that support. Um, and, you know, just like we saw during the pandemic, oh, yeah, we're going to make sure that we're taking care of people where and how. Uh, and as, as you pointed out, if you could cancel it, if you could cancel student debt now for a, a, a period of time, why can't you just cancel it? Same thing goes with, uh, oh, we're going to give uh, the people the COVID vaccine for free. Well, then riddle me this. Why can't you just make health care free then? Because obviously you know how to do those steps because you just did them. Um, then it, it's quite possible to make this a global and universal health care system, which Actually, as many other as many economists have pointed out, just like with student loan, this would actually save money in the long run uh, because you'd have far less 
uh, money is going to administrative fees that just bog down the system. So it's really not a lack of ability. Uh, the, it, it, it would actually be a lot simpler to streamline systems in terms of student loan debt, health care, you name it. But it's, it's a matter of wanting to flip the system to focus on people rather than profit, to focus on people's ability to thrive uh, and uh, you know even just survive rather than focusing on the, 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 the bottom line of what, what let's be honest, uh, the United States is, is an oligarchy. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I appreciate you even using that word uh, oligarchy. I mean, you know, the, the mainstream media in this country and the White House would have you believe that oligarchs only exist in Russia. You know, they're the only ones who have like really, really rich people with a lot of power, apparently. And, you know, it, just in thinking about this, um, Eleanor, is, you know, what kind of system even allows for people to be saddled with that kind of debt? Because I know for me, like, excuse me, my whole life, I heard about the the importance of education, you know, here from parents and hear it just from society in general. Everyone's stressing the importance of education, education, make sure you you do well uh, uh, in school, education, so on. Join the military. We'll pay for your school, 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 education. Right. But then it's almost like you leave school like with a punishment. It's like, okay, well you did this thing that you were told uh, was good and appropriate to do, but now you're stuck with like this albatross around your neck that you're going to have for who knows how long. And yes, the power and resources to alleviate that burden exist, but there's just a refusal to actually employ them. You know what I mean? And so it's kind of a, uh, a real sort of sobering statement about the machinations of the capitalist system that at least in the U.S. pretends that it wants this sophisticated, highly educated population, but makes that difficult in a number of ways, really even to attain the education, which I think is perhaps a whole other separate conversation. But even after you get the uh, uh, education and now have to deal uh, with this burden that so many people have. And to me, it's just one of the points of hypocrisy about this system that says it wants a certain kind of uh, citizen, Eleanor, but does everything in its power to actually, you know, keep this kind of person from being able to develop as much as they can, because it's always, you know, uh, seemingly finding ways to exploit and bleed and, and nickel and dime us to death. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely, Sean. And I think you touched upon a really uh, important piece there, and that's the psychology of capitalism. Uh, this idea that this is the model citizen, uh, and more importantly, if you can't attain this, then that's your fault because you're not picking yourself up by your bootstraps. You're not trying hard enough, you know, making it sound like the Jeff Bezoses of the world are the ones that work the hardest. Um, they just exploit the hardest, but that's not how that's framed, right? Um, and so it really creates not only a, this, 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 this idea that you, of course, it's, it's very individualistic, but it's also very cutthroat and very derogatory. So if you are, if you aren't, aren't around the uh, or you don't have these uh, these um, the ability to get to a university or you don't have the ability to a access a good education then that's clearly your fault and the psychology of that the emotional and mental stress and strain and pain of capitalism is something that should be highlighted as well and I think 
And I'm trying, you mentioned the military. People talk about how there's not a draft anymore. Oh, but there is. It's an economic draft. This idea that if you just agree to murder people uh, or, you know, sit in uh, in, in some, uh, you know, some site in, outside of Vegas and kill people on a, on a screen like it's a video game, then you'll get a free education. How twisted is that, that the only socialized education that we have or higher education that we have in this country is, is accessible to only those who agree to uh, to uh, involve themselves in organized homicide, which is what war is. I mean, that's absolutely sick and twisted. Uh, and it, it really, again, speaks to the the, the, the what's important to this empire, right? Uh, that, you know, the most important thing is its empire, which it has to maintain through violence and military hegemony. Uh, and then, of course, you know, the, the bottom lines of those that support this this oligarchy. Uh, and, you know, the people are fodder, whether that's literally or figuratively in the sense that they just get jammed into the capitalist machine. Uh, and again, if you can't hack it, if you can't hang with it, if you're depressed or feel that the, that the, the, the system is somehow wronging you, then that's your fault. And you just need to, you know, get those better bootstraps. Yeah. And, you know, I'm sure people are listening to this conversation. Some people are listening to this conversation, Eleanor, and are saying, well, you know, you took those loans out and I paid off my debt. And and I, and I get this a lot from, from people who are older than all of us. Right. Who, who say, well, look, I paid my debt off. You shouldn't be allowed to, you know, accumulate this debt and not pay your debt off. And, you know, what about the student loan companies? How are they going to get paid? And, I, you know, just for the sake of responding to those questions that I know are going to come up, what is the response to that? I mean, because I have words, but they're not appropriate. So maybe your response should be better. <laughs> well, I'm actually going to borrow from uh, a friend of mine who unfortunately has passed, but who was an incredible human being, Kilo Niasha, who said that, and this was actually in response to the student loan question as well. And she said, that's like saying that when I was growing up, I wasn't allowed to sit at the front of the bus. So now black people shouldn't be allowed to sit at the front of the bus because I wasn't allowed to. Uh, and and it really like this idea that I didn't have, uh, you know, I didn't have this freedom. Uh, so therefore, others shouldn't either. I, I had to pay off my student loan. Therefore, you should have to and this should have to hang around your neck. Uh, I don't want you to have free education. That is completely bananas. And that's not how things, that's not how a society gets better. Because then you'd always have a reason for it not to get better. Because look, then that's an affront to the people who had it worse. But that is absolutely, if, if that were the case, then we'd still have slavery. Uh, you know, women would still be the property of their husbands. Like this is, this is an absolutely uh, ridiculous argument to make. Uh, and I think it also, again, speaks to the individualistic, uh, you know, context of the society that we're brought up in. You know, people who say things like, well, I don't want my taxes to go to schools because I don't have kids. Okay, <laughs> should they not roads because I only use the sidewalk? Like, what kind of mentality is this if we're agreeing that we want to live in a society uh, where, where people have the ability not just to survive but to thrive, then yes, there are going to be people who might uh, have some liberties or, or, or freedoms or privileges that you didn't have, and you should be happy about that. If I could say that my child will grow up in a world that doesn't have U.S. empire anymore, 
wow, that would be so awesome. And how, where do I sign up for that? Uh, where is that petition? So I think the argument is, is really uh, twisted. It really uh, speaks to a, a kind of ignorance and arrogance and selfishness uh, that, uh, that really uh, you know, pushes against the concept of overall progress. Definitely. We're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Eleanor Goldfield. And, you know, Eleanor, over the break, I was thinking because <laughs> you were mentioning, you know, these people who get all in a tizzy and all in a huff because, you know, they paid their student loan and I, because of that are offended by the idea of like student loan forgiveness. And here's my thing. If you're a person who paid their student loan and really feel like there's a real issue with people getting student loan forgiveness. Here's my question. So what, right? Like, why do we care that you uh, paid your student loan debt? I mean, congratulations. Uh, feel free to, you know what I'm saying? Pat yourself on the back. Don't, don't throw your arm out or anything like that. But it's just wild to me about how people seem to think that paying back your student loans is some kind of virtuous sign of integrity and like you're somehow like a better human being because you you paid this back and i mean i think that it's another example of like uh, a result of this capitalist culture and this uh, a hyper frankly toxic hyper individualism which has a utility for the ruling class i mean the, the individualism is not a, a accident it's not a, a bug in the future it's a system because if everyone is just considering their own individual particular interest or just the very specific particular interest of, you know, their household or whatever, well, then you're disinclined to engage in collective effort or to organize. You don't even see the uh, student loan debt issue as like a collective issue, regardless of the fact that it um, impacts so many people. You're just thinking about what it meant uh, for you. And, and to me, it's it's straight up strange to suggest that because you did this now, every single person has to. I mean, look here, I know misery loves company, but we're talking about something that has a very real, serious, tangible impact for millions of people across this country. And see, and this is another reason, Eleanor, why movement building in the community movement, excuse me, in the community building that happens within that. It's so important because I think this is a part of how we decompress and frankly, you know, not to get all ethereal, but I mean, to, to, to heal from like all the garbage and the nonsense that's been inculcated in us through our socialization 
uh, in this capitalist system. And when I say healing, I don't mean in this, uh, uh, you know, petty bourgeois indulgent kind of way that I think uh, often comes up so much. I mean, in the sense that I think we sometimes have to be reminded of how connected we are to other people and that ultimately the great problems facing society can't be solved on an individual basis. It must be a, a collective effort. And we have to just, I think, throw off the shackles of this thinking like, uh, you know, we have to hold everybody to this, you know, particular thing that, you know, only benefits these corporate entities much. And that's another silly part um, about it. And it's just wild, Eleanor, but actually understandable that, you know, in a system such as this, the ruling class inclines us to only be out for self. And I got to get mine. You got you better get yours because I'm going to get mine. But I think if what we're talking about is sort of uh, doing something to address the rot and the social deterioration in this country is going to mean stepping outside of, you know, me and getting to understand, you know, the power of we, the power of collective effort, the power of movement building. I mean, am I making sense here? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't like uh, I don't like following somebody who puts things that well, Sean. So uh, you're making me a little uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I have, no, I have nothing to add. Um, no, but I think it's uh, I, I think you put it really beautifully and really well, uh, because I, I think one of the one of the biggest problems uh, for us and one of the biggest, uh, you know, advantages to the ruling class is that we have been programmed to romanticize our oppression. Uh, you know, I saw this a lot growing up in the South and, you know, more recently going to places like Louisiana and West Virginia, people romanticize working in industries that kill them slowly, whether that be, you know, chemical plants uh, in Cancer Alley in Louisiana, or whether that be coal mining, uh, you know, dying at 40 after an excruciating battle with that black lung. That That's romanticized. It's, oh, well, we're helping to build America. <laughs> you know, it's really, uh, it, it's, it's, it's so twisted and it's so sad that this is how that's, um, how, how we've been propagandized to instead say, are you kidding? I'm not going to destroy my life, my body, uh, you know, the, 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 the finite amount of time that I have on this earth for the sake of your bottom line. Uh, and so that people can, you know, say that they're flipping the lights on with coal when they could even better flip them on with solar or wind or, you know, fill in the blank. Um, but instead of thinking about it that way, things are framed in such a way that we love the boots on our neck, right? We we look at them and we're like, oh, well, that leather's just so shiny. It's wonderful. You know, and it's so twisted, uh, but it really takes a lot of work to uh, to continuously question the, the the way that things are programmed into us and the way that things are framed, uh, whether that be the student loan debt issue or whether that be health care or, or, or war or, you know, you name it. Uh, it's so difficult. And, and you know, you make the point of, of how community does that. Community allows us these spaces to connect with each other and know that, oh, wow, we're not alone in this morass of late-stage capitalism. We have each other. And that can sound really trite uh, if it's on, like, a Hillary Clinton 
slogan. But if, you, if, it's, if it's mentioned in a sort of grassroots organizing way, which is exactly how I mean it, it is powerful. You know, the roots are what hold things to the earth and what allow them to thrive and grow. Uh, and that is really where our power lies in the ability to take this programming and deconstruct it. And in those ashes, build something that is actually founded on justice and liberty. Absolutely. We have a caller on the line here. Keith, tell us what's on your mind. Uh, hey, a great show, and this is um, a vexing question for the older set and the younger people who are now holding the debt and those who pay. I want to mention Professor Michael Hudson. I think he's got the app term. It's called. It, the term goes like this: a debt that can't be paid won't be paid. And he talks about debt jubilees of the Romans and the ancient uh, Greeks. At, or, uh, you know, and so what they would do is every so often, if the crops had a bad year, fungus killed off everything, they would declare a debt jubilee and wipe the slate clean. And I think that's the way they have to look at it. A debt that can't be paid won't be paid. Thank you. And your guest is wonderful. I'm enjoying this conversation. Thank you. Well, thank you, Keith. Appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, Jackie Lukeman, your thoughts? Yeah, I love that quote. And, you know, the thing about that is, I mean, I hear people say that ridiculous stuff all the time that, you know, oh, I paid my student loan debts and, you know, these kids need to pay theirs. When I went to college, tuition was 50 bucks per credit hour, $55 per credit hour. Now, at and then that was at the University of the District of Columbia. It actually may have been less than that. Um, now, at the University of Maryland, University College, that's just one. Um, uh, tuition is like three, four hundred dollars per credit hour, twelve, fifteen hundred dollars a class, and that's just the cost for the class. We're not even talking about books and fees and all kinds of other stuff. So, you know, the idea that people are angry that this generation of folks can't pay for something that should be a human right. Education is a human right and should be provided by the state for the betterment of its citizens. But the fact that old folks, and I do mean people my age and older, are angry that the younger generation cannot afford a, 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 a service that should be provided to them that is 100, sometimes 200 times more expensive than it was when we were able to go to school. I, it's just, it speaks to not only the individualistic, selfish nature of uh, Americans, but it also speaks to a deep-seated, willful ignorance in a bunch of people who set this situation up so that this generation does face incredibly out-of-control college tuition costs. Nobody's saying anything about that. Nobody's doing anything about it. And then are angry that the same kids who want an education but can't afford the tuition turn around and say, look, something's got to be done. Oh, I know what. Let's cancel the debt, especially the debt that has to go to these private uh, uh, tuition uh, servicers, providers that all cropped up after Biden and his little piece of legislation that made that kind of thing possible. So, you know, really what's, what's going to happen anyway is that if the government doesn't just cancel the debt, people just aren't going to pay it. Honestly, people are just not going to pay it. And I'm not going to be mad at y'all. I'm going to cheer you on. Don't pay it. I say never pay it. 
um, because they're, they're just going to chase you for that money. And this is how they make money, right, Eleanor? They chase the debtors for those student loans beyond the grave. And, and I know this because I still get notices for Mr. Mookman's student loans. And they know that man has left this life. They think somebody's going to pay it. Guess what? Not going to. I mean, so I, I just feel that uh, that that saying that quote, you know, a, a debt that can't be paid won't be paid. Truer words have not been spoken because this government and these uh, student loan servicers they cannot get blood out of a stone, and and this generation of folks just does not have the money to pay for the education that shouldn't be as expensive as it is anyway, Eleanor. Yeah, absolutely, Jackie. I 100% agree. And I think, you know, the other point of this is also, uh, you know, I remember talking to my dad about this, who's in his 70s. The other thing that's changed over the course of these decades since he was in college is that not everyone went to college when he went to college. Uh, I, th- I don't remember exactly what he said, but out of his graduating class at a high school, it wasn't, you know, in the 90 percent uh, or, or, or what have you. People decided to, uh, you know, maybe never go to college. They already knew a trade or something like that. They were going to do the family business or, or what have you. But these days, it is a foregone conclusion that not only do you need an undergraduate degree, but you oftentimes need a graduate degree just to even apply for a job. And I just like to go ahead and tell people, just write something in the, I mean, granted, I haven't had like a bunch of, you know, uh, normal office jobs, but no one ever asked me to show them my college degree. Just say that you went somewhere just for this, this, even if you didn't, um, because it's, it's, it's ludicrous and, you know, give them a taste of their own medicine, um, in the, in the BS machine of, of capitalism. But so I think that that's also important to highlight. You have no access to the money to even hope to pay off this debt unless you go through this system. So it's really a, it, it, it's a really uh, twisted catch 22. And I think that, you know, like the caller pointed out, uh, it can't be paid. It won't be paid. This is what we're seeing. This is what's pushing. It's one $1.5 trillion of can't be paid that is pushing its hefty weight onto our already late stage capitalism straggling economy. And being in a bunch of different mutual aid threads, uh, the things that I see most often are nobody's asking for money to pay their student loan debt. Guess what people are asking for, for support for? For basic needs to survive in the richest country in the on the in the world that's ever existed and people need food people need infant formula people need medical support because of course that's ridiculously expensive too nobody is on that thread saying hey i got a bill from uva that i need help paying nobody's doing that these bills will not be paid and what happens when that 1.5 trillion becomes 2 trillion becomes 2.5 trillion we're really in this position where we're going to watch the entire economy that's already cracking apart. We're going to watch it tremble and fall because of, you know, English Lit 101. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I see some of those uh, things too. And it's always, like you say, stuff like, oh, well, I need to keep my lights on. I need food and diapers for my baby. Or, you know, I just had surgery and I can't pay for it. I mean, it's incredible. I forget, um, Oh, I, forget. I think at one point, I want to say like a third of GoFundMes 
were like for some kind of medical procedure. And, and that's from a few years back. But I mean, you know, like anyone else, I mean, we all see these things, particularly on social media. Um, it just seems like all the time people are needing money for uh, uh, basic things. And, and I think the fact that people are in such a medical need in a country that refuses to supply, you know, Medicare for all, even though it could, I think is, you know, just uh, indicative of that. And that's just another um, uh, uh, sort of example of the exploitation of this system. I mean, it's criminal to live in the wealthiest nation in the history of nations and uh, not have access to the most basic of basic of things. You know, and, and, and this is what we mean when we talk about the need to um, completely reshape and restart and reconstruct society on the basis of people's needs instead of the needs of capital or the needs of CEOs or corporations of bosses who are only out to enrich themselves at the expense of the masses of poor working and, and oppressed people at the expense of the planet. And at the expense of so many things that so many people need. I mean, when you have a land of plenty that is controlled by greed, that is really what we're dealing with in the United States. But, you know, it's deeper than just, you know, uh, greed as some, uh, you know, uh, character flaw or whatever in a vacuum. It's about being a part of a system that is voracious and rapacious and insatiable. And that needs to, you know, consume people, land and resources all over the earth to sustain itself. And the only way that we can right the ship and have a society that's geared toward our interests is as if we organize and change the system and society itself. But we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 0252-11320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Eleanor Goldfield is here. And, you know, Jackie, I swear, I have like a, a very small nervous breakdown every time I hear, you know, you or not just you, but anyone that talks about, you know, the prices of tuition at a certain time, what a one bedroom apartment used to cost in rent. I mean, not that long ago, I had uh, uh, an older colleague tell me about like what rent was like in the lower east side of New York. And I just couldn't believe it. You know what I mean? And so it's just so incredible to live in a country that has so much, but it's so expensive to live. The prices of things continue to rise while wages either stagnate or drop. And the only uh, wage increase 
you know, that we tend to see in terms of coming from the Biden administration, it takes place, you know, over six, seven, nine, 10, 15, 20, 45 years to the point where by the time it actually kicks in, it, it won't be enough either. So, you know, this capitalist system, it's a sick game. It's a sick game. And if you're a part of the majority of people, you stand to be a real loser. And we're all told that, you know, if we just put in a little elbow grease and if we just work hard enough and do all the things we're supposed to do, someone earlier mentioned that old uh, bootstrap thing, right? If we just do that, then maybe we can be a winner. But if we don't reach that level, well, it's not because of the issue of, you know, the system itself and how it operates. It's our fault. It's a personal, here it is again, individual uh, character flaw that uh, uh, leads to that. And so, you know, Jackie, it's like the system, in order to sustain itself, it has to tell us that reality is the inverse and that the system is not the problem. And we just have to, you know, run around confused about the symptoms and that even if we understand the symptoms, if we point to symptoms, if we point to the system as the root cause of the issue, well, then somehow we're mistaken. You know what I mean? It's it's that old issue of, well, you know, are you going to believe me or your lion eyes? And so, you know, this this whole kind of culture and land of like make believe that this country needs to sustain itself. And that's very real because, you know, American exceptionalism, this imperial hubris, all these sorts of things, they can only really function atop a mountain of lies. Because what the United States tells the world about itself and what the U.S. tells people in this country about itself is a lie about its so-called greatness and uh, things like that, you know? And so uh, that's why, you know, political education, I think, is so important because it helps us see things clear and it sort of, you know, pulls the veil from over our eyes, if you will, of a lifetime of, you know, lies and untruths and distortions and, and, and all these sorts of things and misinformation. There's a topical word, right? And, you know, it, it, it's another benefit, I think, of the movement building um, exercise in terms of, frankly, finding out the reality of what this country is, how it operates and how it doesn't operate in our favor, which I think should sort of further deepen our resolve to not only uh, fight this system as it is, but to restructure it in a way to where it is in our favor. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, absolutely true. And, and it's wild because when I think about the fact that I was able to survive and take care of myself. You know, when I graduated high school in 85 and 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 worked at Tower Records and Video making minimum wage and then just barely above minimum wage as a supervisor, nowhere near $15 an hour, more like 750 or something like that, maybe $9 and some change an hour was as much as I made, but I was able to afford a one bedroom apartment and a little bit of, you know, money on the weekend to, uh, uh, you know, go out and have fun, you know, $470 a month for a one bedroom apartment. And, you know, not everybody needed to go to college because you could afford 
to live. But then there were, we saw like the, the, the change in society, even during that time, because then there was the push to get everyone, especially black folks, to go to college for an MBA, the masters, your masters of business association. And, you know, everybody and their brother and their uncle and their niece and nephew was going to college to get an MBA. And then they all graduated from college with these MBAs and there were no MBA level jobs because the market was then saturated with MBAs. So you had all of these college students who went to school uh, amassed all this debt to get these MBAs taking jobs that paid a lot less than what they were expecting. So as you see this go on throughout the years, you realize what the trick is, right? You, you realize that the trick in this system is to tell you, first of all, that, you know, if you want to get anything and be respected in life, you have to, you have to work hard. Well, you, when you live around people who are poor, I don't know anybody who works harder than poor people. I honestly do not. I've never seen them. Right. So but they because they are poor, they are regarded with so little respect. They are being used as, you know, that uh, um, uh, morality lesson for everybody else. Hey, if you don't want to be poor, you have to work hard. So people are duped into literally working themselves to death at low paying jobs or at halfway decent paying jobs. But not taking any time out for their families and for themselves, committing themselves to the grind in order to get ahead, to be respected, or they get into the student loan debt, going into debt to pay for college to get a better job than their working class or poor parents uh, had. And then they end up pretty much not too far economically from the very people they're trying to improve themselves above all because this system, Eleanor, tells folks, you don't want to be like poor people. Look at those poor people over there. They would have so much more if they worked harder. But people have so much disdain for poor folks in this country. And that's just the way this country is set up, that people aren't paying attention to the fact that the people who provide the services they uh, uh, they 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 access every day the people who serve their food in restaurants the people who work at the gas station the people who work in the grocery stores those are all those folks that this society says are lazy but those are the hardest working people in our society and when you look at this trick that is played on folks in this society and you see the lies that are told, about the people uh, that are used in that trick, then, I mean, that's where I think the radicalization starts. At least it did with me, Eleanor, because I grew up around a bunch of those people, grew up in Southeast DC, mostly, around poor people who worked really hard, but were always the ones who were held up as the example of what you don't want to be. So after a while, I kind of realized Maybe the problem is not that, you know, poor people um, should not want to be poor and need to work harder. Maybe the problem is someone's lying to everyone about poor people and how this system works. And let me find out what the truth is. And, and I think if more people, Eleanor, were more open to looking at society in that way, I think we'd be a lot less, a lot closer 
to an actual revolution that we need. But I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the ability of people to do that. I mean, it's not the, no pun intended, but the million dollar question. Um, I mean, there's so many good points there, Jackie. And I think that uh, there's, again, like kind of the circle back to what I mentioned earlier about the psychology of capitalism. Uh, I remember watching a a segment years ago. I can't, unfortunately, remember what alternative news show was, but pointed out how absurd it is that we oftentimes talk in news and in media about what to do if you become a millionaire or what to do if you win the lottery. When that is the most unlikely, like you're more likely to get bit by a shark and struck by lightning in the same day than become a millionaire if you were, you know, if, if, if you're born and raised and live in poverty. I mean, it's, it's, it's so absurd. And yet this is the, this is the American dream, right? Where we're told that if you work hard enough, you will become a millionaire. That is, not true. It is you, when you, if, if you work hard enough, you will likely die early of some chemical toxic waste that was leached into your community because the corporation doesn't care about you. That is a so much more American story than this rags to riches. Uh, but you see it permeate all parts of our uh, of our of our world, our media. I mean, I, when I was younger, I moved to LA to become a rock star, and you know these romantic stories about how my my favorite band they started out as homeless and now they live in Malibu or whatever. But that's not going to be you. Like I, that's just the exception that proves the rule, right? Um, but this is again like that paradigm uh, that we're fed, uh, and at the same time, you know, Jackie pointed out that these folks are, you know, considered to be, uh, you know, deplorable before that word was was co-opted. But uh, these, you know, poor people are like this is who you shouldn't be, and yet they're also romanticized in a lot of aspects, right? Like, oh, these are the people that work really hard and make sure that we have food on our tables. Like, you know, you see uh, these these happy uh, commercials of. Uh, of, of, of Latinx people in the fields, and they've got big smiles on their faces, and they're like, hey, I love working uh, for, uh, you know, this, 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 this fruit company. Uh, and, of course, that's not, that's not at all close to their reality. Um, they're basically slaves uh, in, in, in this horrific situation. Uh, but, you know, the way that they're, you know, pedestaled, particularly during the pandemic, it's like, oh, these are our essential workers but the quest, the, the conversation that never turns to how do we treat these people if they're that essential? That's absurd. Uh, you know, that, that conversation is not okay because then, of course, the conversation would turn to wait, are you saying that the Mark Zuckerbergs aren't essential and the person who bags the groceries? Uh, that you ordered online because you had the ability to stay home and not go to work. Uh, You're saying that Zuckerberg's less important than that guy? Yes, absolutely. I'm saying that. But we can't have that conversation, right, on corporate media or even on, you know, on uh, on, uh, social media or or things like that. That gets blocked immediately because that threatens the very framework, the very foundation of this system that tells people that they too can be millionaires and that millionaires are what you should all always aspire to, even though they are sociopaths. And that's why they got there, because they're okay with exploiting people, with exploiting ecosystems, with treating the world like it is infinite when it is finite. Um, And that's really, you know, that is the the paradigm that cannot be questioned. Uh, And so, you know, as to your question, I think, you know, I think that it's always, everything's always possible until we prove that it's not, right? The doors are open until we shut them. 
Uh, and I think that if, if we're organizing it under any other assumption, then I have to ask why we're organizing <laughs> if we think it's already a foregone conclusion. Um, but I think, you know, it, it's really a matter of how do we build this future? Because the future is there to be built. It's also there to be destroyed. And I think that we should also look at destruction as a form of creation. You know, for instance, destroying an empire is a form of creation in, the, in, in a different world's image. How are we going to build a world that is actually based on justice and freedom and liberty as opposed to this current world that we live under? Uh, and these are questions that are, you know, bouncing back and forth uh, off of digital walls, off of literal walls. Uh, now that people can get back together in, in, in uh, you know, in well, well, uh, well, airy spaces, um, but you know these, these these are big questions, and I think that they are powerful ones, and they're ones that people are already organizing under, and I think that 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 gives me hope for the future. And though I can't answer your question, I guess I would say that I'm uh, I'm not an optimist, uh, but I am always hopeful. Yeah, I'm hopeful as well. Um, I'm, I'm optimistic. I actually, I have a lot of faith in the capacity for people to be able to bring about change. I feel like history is, is very illustrative of that. I have no faith whatsoever in this uh, system to reform itself or even for us to reform it in any sort of majorly considerable way. I certainly don't have any faith in representatives of the ruling class of this system are elected officials and, and things like this, because, you know, if they were serious about really fixing some of these things, then they would. And there wouldn't even be any uh, need for us to have conversations like this. But as we see, uh, you know, despite their pronouncements, despite the, the promises, the vote for me and, and I'll set you free. Here we are yet and still with millions of people going without so many very basic things while seeing their money being sent to, you know, uh, support war and support the, the death and bloodshed of another people in another part of the earth while our conditions continue to deteriorate here. And see, and that's another reason why I have optimism because, you know, this system, it's being revealed more and more to be a house built on sinking sand. Because like you said, Eleanor, you know, you, you can't have a system based on infinite expansion and exploitation on a planet that is finite. So at a certain point, those contradictions are going to become more and more glaring. But as I always like to point out, no matter how bad conditions get, you know, revolutionary consciousness, it doesn't drop from the sky. It doesn't happen by accident. It's something that has to be developed along with an organizing effort, along with a movement building, community uh, building effort for folks to understand in a more precise way how their conditions connect to this system. I think a lot of people are aware of it on sort of a base level, but to not only connect it to excuse me, the um, system at a, a base level, but all of these different issues, such as the climate and all these other things, not just in the U.S., but around the globe. And I think then we get a real sort of scope and I think a real appreciation of the magnitude of, you know, the effort that it's going to take 
to really change this country, which is the, the dominant superpower on the world stage. And I mean, having a revolutionary transformation of a hegemonic society like the United States is no small task, to be sure. But throughout history, I think we've seen different situations where a people who had all the odds against them and where the opponent had all the resources and all the monies and all the weaponry and all the force and the monopoly on state violence and all of that. And yet they still won. I mean, look at the Haitian revolution, look at the Cuban revolution, look at the Grenada revolution, look at the uh, revolution in China, all over the world where you find a revolution, you see uh, the most exploited and marginalized people rising up against their ruling class to demand that a society be brought about that actually supports them instead of tries to, you know, chew them up and spit them out. And this is the movement we must build. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. Want to thank Eleanor Goldfield so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with all new episodes. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By any means necessary.